I'm April Scully. And I'm Kian Frendival, and this is Bottom Dog, the story of the Limerick Soviet, 1919. So in the first three episodes, we went through the events in Limerick leading up to the general strike of April 1919. How the strike developed into a Soviet with workers running the city, but was ultimately betrayed by both the national leaders of the trade union movement and the nationalist movement around Sinn Féin. In this episode, we're going to look at the broader context of the Limerick Soviet, how it sparked similar movements and highlights a road not taken in Irish history, the road of socialist revolution. You have to look beyond the 5th of May 1919 because quite soon after that, John Dowling, who had been involved in Limerick with other socialist uh, ITGW organisers like uh, Jack McGrath, like Jack Headley, within a very short period of time, they began the whole series of strikes, stroke Soviets, stroke occupations throughout the Cleves business empire in Munster, throughout uh, various towns and villages in Munster. So some of the key people who were involved in the Limerick Soviet then began to propagate similar views. And that whole wave of Soviets, which are now called the Munster Soviets, was really, I think, inspired and emboldened and had a kind of a foundation put under it by what had happened in Limerick. So that in that sense, it had a very significant impact on what was happening in revolutionary Ireland at the time. Those points there were made by Liam Cahill and very interestingly that the Limerick Soviet inspired a ripple effect, a series of workplace Soviets in the years after around Munster. So you had the Knocklong Soviet, the Brewery Soviet, the Castle Connell Soviet and more. Yeah, and, and these were Soviets in the sense that they went beyond just taking strike action. The workers ended up taking over and, and running the factories themselves um, right across Munster. But you had a, a fascinating one in Monaghan where the workers took over the running of an asylum in the Monaghan Asylum Soviet, which I, I think is always an interesting uh, little story. Yeah, that's fascinating. But returning now to Limerick City, what was going on at, at that point? Yeah, there wasn't uh, workplace occupations in the same way in the city. It was mainly in the county. But what you did have in Limerick a few years later was, was struggles around housing, which were very interesting, which a lot of the same characters that were involved in the Soviets uh, ended up in, in supporting this struggle around housing, which I spoke to, to Thomas Keane, who wrote his PhD um, on this period of Limerick's history and unearthed a fascinating story about the, the Gary Owen uh, housing crisis. And here he talks about the, the housing conditions in Limerick at the time. There was over 430 empty houses in Limerick. There was similar in Cork and Waterford, right? But in terms of the building of houses, at social housing at this time, Limerick was way down the list, right? Waterford, which had only a 70% of the Limerick population, built nearly four times as many social houses. Cork, which was double the size of Limerick, built about four times more social housing. Limerick was way down the list in the terms of building social housing. That's pretty fascinating, particularly because of the parallels that are still there today. You know, still 100 years later, we still have massive problems of finding people homes, of 430 empty houses back in Limerick. I mean, that same phenomenon exists today where houses are just boarded up because they're not profitable enough to release. Yeah, one, one of the big parallels that I thought when I was talking to Thomas was he spoke about how... Part of the problem was that the majority of the councillors on the council 
were, were actually landlords themselves. So they were profiting out of the slum conditions. Same as today. Exactly. It's a similar problem where you have a, a huge amount of the TDs and the doll are, are themselves landlords. But that was the backdrop. So, so now things get interesting. 1922, once the treaty was signed, you had the, the disbandment of the RIC and the leaving of the British Army. There was one section of the British Army, the engineers who mainly occupied 27 houses in Garyon Villas. So they were all going to be moved out and the houses would be empty. Now, 12 families who were living in abject poverty made a decision that they were going to occupy these houses. And they did. As soon as the British Army moved out, they moved in and they took over the houses. They became known as the commandeered houses. Uh, kind of a military term, but there was no military involvement in it. You can see the parallels, I think, with the Take Back the City occupation that happened in Dublin last year, where people out of desperation and frustration at the lack of action by the political establishment organised themselves and took direct action to occupy the vacant homes in Dublin City to highlight the extortionate rents and also the lack of availability of homes as well for people. And the fact that there's these vacant houses lying idle, which was a, a major point of frustration at this stage. There in, in Dublin, in the Take Back the City thing, they, they only managed to last a couple of weeks. But in this case, in Limerick, they managed to last almost a year. And similar demands were raised. Number one, they demanded that those houses should be used to house people from the slums. They should be made into public housing. But just like Take Back the City, the workers in Limerick were demanding that the council should be building more council housing. They demanded that they build 3,000 council houses across Limerick to clear the slums. And who organised that? Was it an organisation or was it individual people? Yeah, individual people came together and formed the Limerick Workers' Housing Association. At the heart of that was a a guy by the name of William James Larkin, but he's not that Jim Larkin, he just happens to to share the name. And that association got the support from local trade unions and also from the public. At the end of the occupations, there was a a ceremony organised by the people of Limerick um, where they awarded the freedom of the city uh, to uh, William James Larkin, which just shows some of the support that it had. Yeah, and the effect that it had as well on people's lives, I'm sure. And how did it end? So initially when they occupied the housing, there was this uh, interregnum. The RIC was gone, but on Garda hadn't been established. So there was no police force to speak of to evict them. But... At the end of the year, the Angarda was established and one of their first actions was actually to go in and to arrest somebody from the occupation. And over the course of a few weeks then, the bishop started to try to blacken the name of, of James Larkin, try to divide and rule between them. And in the end, they came to a certain compromise with the, with the state. And what was the result of that? So the, the compromise was that the workers got to keep some of the houses, some of the families got to stay there. But the biggest gain out of that occupation, I would say, was the impact on council policy. Over the years following that occupation, you saw a change and the council started building more housing, as Thomas talks about here. Now, when you look back at the occupation of the Garion houses, uh, you would wonder... If that was an impulse, because that was in 1922, by 1927, in those five years, the slums were cleared and the beginning of St Mary's Park started in 1927. So it could have been the impulse from this that frightened the authorities and said, hi, we've just had got rid of a Soviet in 1919, now we're looking at another problem here, is this going to escalate? 
I mean, that's an insight into a side of things that you don't often hear in Irish history. I think working class people share the same interest for secure, safe housing and a class struggle that puts it up to the establishment that like we have the power to, they've demonstrated that they have had the power to achieve that. They demonstrated that in, in the Soviet and, and also in the Limerick housing struggle, but that people fighting for better conditions can actually win real material gains. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the, the class struggle from this period is, is written out of the history books. When you study history in Leaving Cert or Junior Cert, you're often presented with this unstoppable march from the 1916 Rising to the War of Independence, the Treaty, Civil War, Partition and all that. And there's never any any real reference to the class struggles that were also taking place during this period. It's been written out of the history books. Yeah, I think when you look at the history books that are commenting on this period, they present it as two options. One option being a continuation of British rule for Ireland or else Irish people struggling for independence, but de facto under a rule of the Roman Catholic Church and under Irish landlords, Irish industry. And the quote unquote best option at that stage was that, oh, we would create two poverty stricken sectarian states, the North and the South. Whereas the Limerick Soviet and all the Soviets around Munster is an inspiring example to show that there was actually an alternative and an alternative will actually the question of power and mm. workers' control of mm-hmm. the yeah. Irish state. Exactly. Like there was this path not taken, this road not taken. And I spoke to D.R. O'Connor Lysett, uh, who was one of the first to write about the Limerick Soviet. He, he wrote a pamphlet which came out in, in 1979. And he talked about this period of time being one of treble power, that there was three different powers competing to rule in Ireland. In a sense, uh, the whole situation was three distinct social groups objectively struggling for to establish their own state. The Brits, Dublin Castle, running the state ultimately in the interests of British imperialism. Then you have the, the uh, Irish bourgeoisie, particularly the uh, petty bourgeoisie, farmers, uh, people f- struggling to get control of their, their own state. And finally, there are the workers overlapping sometimes with the bourgeoisie, but still the political aim of the bourgeoisie being different from the aims that they were in the interests of the workers and that the official leaders of the workers stated were the, their aims. So it's sort of like a, a Game of Thrones situation, different groups fighting and vying uh, for control in Ireland. OK, I haven't seen Game of Thrones, but... <laughs> Well, it's like that, but with more explicit scenes in the middle. <laughs> OK, but I I get the concept of it. It's about these like competing interests. But for workers, socialism is about getting rid of that throne. So there's no game um, and establishing a workers' democracy. Yeah, it's, it's not a perfect analogy. But it's that, <laughs> that idea that there was different forces vying to rule in Ireland. And obviously the vision of socialism isn't one of, of thrones, but vying for the working class to, to, to run society. We are the men. We only answer to the people's plea. We can no more for them, Marshal Law, than the British Army curse for you and me. Than the British Army curse for you and me. We are the liberates, obedience. We only answer to the people's plea. We can no more for them, Marshal Law, than the British Army curse for you and me. Than the British. 
this is not new to the beginning of the 20th century in Ireland where James Connolly, who was a particularly celebrated and important historical figure, talked about this concept a lot, which is the need to not only end imperialism, but also capitalism and the need for socialism. And there's a good quote, I think, that we should play now. If you remove the English army tomorrow and hoist the green flag over Dublin Castle, unless you set about the organisation of the Socialist Republic, your efforts will be in vain. England will still rule you. She would rule you through her capitalists, through her landlords, through her financiers, through the whole array of commercial and individualist institutions she has planted in this country and watered with the tears of our mothers and the blood of our martyrs. So that's Darren Marr, local actor, giving an impassioned rendition of Connolly's words. Yeah, and I think it's a very apt quote from Connolly. Uh, in the, the rest of the pamphlet, Connolly goes on to talk about the danger of establishing a republic that wouldn't be socialist. He says that you'll end up with people still being evicted from their homes, but the only difference is instead of the police wearing uniforms with the crown on it, the uniforms will have the, the harp on it. And when you go back to the conversation we were having about the housing crisis, I think that is precisely what we have today. Yeah, and there's a real tragedy in that where under British rule, one of the main struggles was the right to have a secure home and a roof over our head. And today in 2019, we're still struggling for the same goal, which is to have a home without a crippling mortgage Mm -hmm. or without skyrocketing rents. Yeah, and the Limerick Soviet was an example of how these things could have been resolved. It was a a microcosm of an opportunity that was lost, uh, um, an opportunity to to build a socialist republic. And and that's something that that Dominic Hock refers to um, as the, the tragedy of Limerick. The hope offered by Limerick was that you would have the development of the workers' movement, the development of a class consciousness the development of class struggle in Ireland, leading ultimately to a workers' republic on the island of Ireland as a whole. It must be remembered that the most organised section of the working class in Ireland were in Belfast. And the biggest fear among the unionists in Belfast was the potential of workers' struggle. So the potential of working class unity existed, but it could only exist on a class basis. It could only exist on the basis of the labour movement and the workers' movement in Ireland leading the struggle for self-determination on a class basis rather than on a nationalist basis, which allowed unionism to drive a sectarian wedge between Catholic and Protestant workers in the North. That phrase Dominic uses, workers' republic, is a powerful idea because it sums up the aspiration that we want a country that's not run by the clergy are not run by the British monarchy or by capitalists, but we want a a country that's run by workers in the interests of workers. And you can see like there's some similar things today, I think. You know, in today's language, we'd probably say we want a world for the 99%, you know, or the phrase that Bernie Sanders uses that's evocative of that is we want a political revolution against the billionaire class. And I think these sums up similar ideas. Yeah, and, and the phrase Workers' Republic would have been popularised by Connolly and it would have inspired people like Sean Dowling here in Limerick. Dominic's second point in terms of how that vision of a Workers' Republic could have helped to avoid the division of the working class, whereas Sinn Féin's idea of a, of a nationalist or a Catholic or a capitalist republic could only alienate them. I, I think that's a very interesting point as well. It's really interesting because we're often told that there's this insurmountable division between Protestants and Catholics, that Protestants are imperialist lovers, and Catholic, the Catholics were backwards. 
um, home rule is Rome rule, uh, was that phrase, etc. And actually it's not the case. There was another tradition of workers' unity and socialism. Yeah, and uh, I spoke with Conor Costick who wrote a book covering the Irish Revolution in general and he talks about, about that, about how actually the grip of the unionist ruling class on the Protestant working class in, in Belfast, for instance, was, was slipping at this time and there was a growing socialist consciousness, particularly amongst Protestant workers in Belfast. And the unionist grip was slipping in 1919. There's a report sent back to the British government that says during the strike about a quarter of the strikers are out-and-out socialists. And I think that's quite a realistic assessment. Uh, So I'm not claiming that the North was a majority of socialists at any point, but at the high point, perhaps a quarter of the working class were looking for a socialist solution, and that quarter could have won the day and grown and become a majority, but only if their colleagues in the South were fighting shoulder to shoulder for the Workers' Republic. As soon as their colleagues in the South have settled for a nationalist republic and and an alliance with the Catholic Church, they're scuppered. They're they're left isolated. And then the pogroms kick in. And I don't think Connor's saying that it's straightforward, that you have a, a quarter of the working class that's socialist and so you can very easily establish socialism. Obviously, there's a lot of struggle that still has to take place. You would have needed to, to challenge the prejudices that existed then. Just like now, you still need to challenge prejudices that exist within the working class in terms of race or gender or sexuality. But it's a sign that it was possible. Uh, you had this questioning of capitalism taking place. You had a, a section of the working class that was one to the idea of transforming the world. And if they could have been organised to lead and to convince the rest of, of society that, that there was that alternative and opportunity posed. But sadly, an opportunity that was missed, as Dominic Hock explains. The problem during this entire period was that there was a constant conflict between labour and nationalism in terms of who was going to lead the struggle for self-determination. Was the struggle for self-determination to be purely confined to the political sphere Or was it going to encompass social and economic demands as well? Was it going to be purely about replacing the the crown with the harp? Or was it going to be talking about the development of a socialist revolution through socialist consciousness? And the reality was that the leadership of the ILP TUC had coattailed Sinn Féin and the nationalist leadership since the beginning of 1917. They had done it through their approach to the conscription crisis and they did it again in terms of their approach to the Limerick Soviet. So from the perspective of the leadership, they didn't want to lead a worker's struggle. They didn't want to place the labour movement in Ireland at the head of the struggle for self-determination because the clear and obvious conclusion of that was that they wouldn't just be leading for independence, they would also have to lead a campaign for social and economic emancipation as well. This decision to pull the reins on on the labour movement, um, on the struggle for national independence, like I think we should take a moment to talk about what a tragedy that was in terms of all the impact that that's had on Irish society, all the the oppression that's been meted out um, to Irish people in terms of like the ruling institutions of the church and the abuses that have happened to mm-hmm. women and children. Definitely. Like that opportunity being missed meant that what emerged instead was, as you said, two sectarian states 
poverty-stricken, mass unemployment, decades of emigration. But it, it didn't need to be that way. There, there was an opportunity to establish a country that could have provided decent housing, healthcare, jobs for, for all, um, if only this, the path of the Limerick Soviet had been followed nationally. If more conservative forces decide to pull the reins on the Labour movement because they see it getting out of their control or running ahead of them by more radical layers or, or more far-reaching um, ideas, how do we, as a class intervene into that or say, no, you can't yeah, cut this off. I think what would have been needed was for the Dowlings and those more radical and revolutionary elements to be more organised, uh, to take the reins from the conservative leaders of the trade union movement and to actually challenge them. Um, and Dominic talks about the need for a revolutionary party or a Marxist party, as he puts it. A Marxist party as such did not exist. And the lack of a Marxist party uh, then undermine the ability of the Marxists to be able to act as a unified grouping on a national basis. So, for example, if they had been in communication with uh, Marxist elements in Cork or in Dublin or in Belfast and so forth, they would have had an indication of the mood. The potential would have existed to making an appeal to the, the workers nationally over the heads of the leadership of the Trade Union Congress and potentially bringing workers out in a general strike, whether the Trade Union Congress sanctioned it or not. So that was a crucial element that was missing during the period. The reason why I'm interested in the Limerick Soviet is because I'm interested in struggles of previous socialists that were involved in battles to change society. And what lessons were there? Like, why were they defeated? And... What lessons can we learn from the future as a consequence? Like to give an example, one of the big learning points for me since I've been politically conscious is that in Greece, when Syriza came to power and they came to power on a really radical program of nationalisation, of burning the bondholders and the Greek working class were really behind them. And then the whole weight of European capitalism bore down on them and then they just capitulated. They just sold out. And now you can see the mess of the Greek economy today and, and how the lives of people are... Yeah, the same story keeps on repeating it yeah. itself again and again, that you have this huge revolutionary opportunity, pressure comes on and the leaders buckle. But I think that's where Dominic's point of the need for revolutionaries who have studied the lessons of the past to, to be organised. In the case of Limerick, the need for the Dowlings, the Sean Dowlings of this world, to organise themselves, to challenge the, the right-wing leaders of the Labour movement and fight for a socialist policy instead. So it is important to take stock of these lessons and take stock of what an enormous opportunity was missed with the Limerick Soviet and what devastating consequences flowed from this defeat. And Conor Kostick is going to sum that up in his last clip. Well, it is a tragedy. It is a tragedy because a socialist island has implications for the whole world at this time. I mean, the whole world was very, very close to becoming socialist. And I'd love my children who have grown up in a world without wars and without poverty. And the rest of it, I mean, it's just the, the climate and everything. It's just awful what's happened in the 20th century. And a whole nother Second World War, all those millions of lives ruined, you know, that could have been avoided. That's the end of episode 4 of the Bottom Dog podcast. Episode 5 will be the finale of this series and will look at the lessons we can learn from the Limerick Soviet for the struggles of today. If you have thoughts or suggestions for other topics we should cover in future series, please contact us at keyandplk on Twitter or email info at limericksoviet.ie. 
I'd like to thank Darren Maher for dramatizations, Dominic Hock, Liam Cahill, Connor Costick, and Rainer Lysett for the interviews used in this episode, and a special thanks to Post Punk Podge for the music used throughout. This podcast was hosted by me, Kian Prendival, and my co-host April Scully. Sound mixing was done by Marty Walsh. Thanks to Richard Smith of Limerick City Community Radio for giving us some help and studio time there, and to Danny Scott for regular feedback and assistance throughout production. Finally, this podcast is now available on YouTube. Simply search for Bottom Dog Limerick and give it a like or share it with your friends from there.